Hi, this is filmmaker and author Michael Morin. Whenever I'm not riding my bike around the Davis campus, I'm listening to 90.3 KDVS College Radio right here. FM. Cool. This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. All right, you guys got to hear this. Buckle your seatbelts. Yes, that was 22 seconds of the London Symphony Orchestra and London Pop Choir playing the best of the Rolling Stones. I found this CD in the bargain bin many months ago and have been wondering how to make use of it because I knew at some point we'd have to air this on the program. And I guess it's appropriate to commemorate the fact that it's now Sir Mick Jagger, the 60-year-old Jumpin' Jack Flash lead singer of the Rolling Stones, Yes, was officially knighted by the British establishment last Friday. Perhaps you saw the picture on the web of a smiling Mick posing with his 92-year-old father, Joe, and, I don't know, a smattering of his many daughters from various, uh, various moms along the way. We should note that decades ago, uh, Joe Jagger apparently chided his son's passion for, quote, jungle music, unquote. This event was uh, notable for a lack of fuss. Uh, Apparently, British attitudes have changed since 1965 when some outraged dignitaries returned their gold medals in protest after the Beatles were made members of the Order of the British Empire. Apparently, the only dissenting voice to Mick Jagger being made a member of the British Empire was his rock mate, Keith Richards. Now, we were curious as to why Keith Richards would sound a sour note about this award, so we put in a call to the island of Barbados, and we have now, on the phone, Keith Richards of the Rolling Stones. Mr. Richards, are you there? Mr. Richards, why did you uh, call your bandmate receiving the knighthood a disgrace? How do you respond to Mr. Jagger laughing and saying uh, about you that I think that he probably would like to get the same honor himself? So I guess, sir, what's important that is through thick and thin, you're still mates. Well, Keith Richards of the Rolling Stones, thank you so much for talking to us here at Radio Parallax. We have a great show for you today with a number of guests. We'll be joined in our third segment by Stephanie Bergsma from Radio KPBS-FM in San Diego. 
to talk about the interesting donation of $200 million to National Public Radio by philanthropist Joan Kroc. We will also be joined on that same subject by Michael Lazar. Michael Lazar is the president and general manager of Capital Public Radio, your local NPR affiliate. In the second segment today, we're going to address the 100th anniversary of the Wright Brothers' first flight, which took place 100 years ago yesterday. Discussing this will be our special aviation correspondent, Vladimir Zarevika. Uh, we've actually cited a fairness and accuracy in reporting, FAIR, many times in the last year uh, for some of the good work they've done in serving as a watchdog group. Case in point right now, uh, current issue of Extra Magazine, which is uh, the magazine of FAIR, the media watch group, had a little follow-up we should uh, we should go into here. Bill O'Reilly was uh, talked about on this program um, as regards his little battle with Al Franken some months back, and we still recommend you go to the NPR website. Hopefully it's still there, and listen to Terry Gross's interview with uh, Bill O'Reilly, which is just a classic example of, of David versus Goliath. But the article notes that Bill O'Reilly on Fox said recently, criticizing the L.A. Times, that Arnold Schwarzenegger's alleged record of groping and sexual assault showed a double standard. Quote, do you think the L.A. Times sent a squad of reporters to Arkansas to investigate Bill Clinton's problems with women? No, it did not. Well, Fair pointed out that actually the L.A. Times did investigate Clinton's sex stories in Arkansas, running a 4,000-word piece on its front page on December 21st, 1993. When, uh, when Fair pointed this out, O'Reilly went back on the air with a, with a sort of response that said um, he read a letter from a Mr. Edward Frew from Melbourne, Australia, and said uh, as follows, Mr. Frew, with all due respect, you need to stay off the left-wing websites, which is where you came up with that. The article you cite was headed, Troopers say Clinton sought silence on personal affairs. The White House calls their allegations about the president's private life ridiculous. The story was reported giving both sides of the controversy O'Reilly went on to say it was not an attempt to dig anything up and did not level accusations or exonerate Mr. Clinton. It was simply a news piece. Stay off the websites with left-wingers, all right? Well, it turns out that O'Reilly was implying that the 1993 story was not an example of what he was talking about because the subhead contained a denial from the Clinton camp. Of course, that in no way means the L.A. Times did not send a squad of reporters to Arkansas to investigate Bill Clinton's problems with women, which was what O'Reilly was originally claiming. In fact, the L.A. Times subhead just makes the Clinton story more parallel to the Schwarzenegger story, which included the subhead, a campaign aide denies the charges. Poor Bill, he, he just can't seem to stick to the facts. That reminds me of a famous quote I heard supposedly about um, uh, that they teach in law school. The young lawyers are told that when the law is on your side, pound on the law. And when the facts are on your side, pound on the facts. And when neither is on your side, pound on the table. And uh, I'm pretty sure O'Reilly's table has got a lot of dents on it. Of course, the biggest story since we were on the air last Thursday is the fact that Saddam Hussein has been captured alive in Iraq. The, uh, the part of this story that I think that's blowing my mind is the fact that um, the news went out saying, quote, citing a United States intelligence officer in Iraq, the report said that when asked if the government had weapons of mass destruction, Saddam replied, no, of course not. The U.S. dreamed them up to have a reason to go to war with us. Well, he's a bad guy and a brutal dictator and a, just a cold-hearted killer. 
But I think on this one, he's telling the truth. The fact is that Saddam's been in hiding since last April, and the U.S. military has overrun the country, and they have not found weapons of mass destruction. Interesting, too, that according to a poll by the Bloomberg News, University of Maryland, taken about a week ago, only 21% of Americans thought that, um, that the central U.S. focus should be capturing Saddam Hussein. 75% say that capturing Osama bin Laden should be the U.S.'s central focus. And although capturing Saddam may turn out to be a, is probably a good thing, to be sure, um, it was Osama bin Laden and al-Qaeda that attacked the United States on September 11, 2001, and he's still at large. And I'm sorry to report we were unable to attend the showing of Robert Greenwald's documentary, Uncovered, The Whole Truth About the Iraq War. We had, of course, Mr. Greenwald on a couple weeks back. If any of you did attend that showing, would you please give us some feedback on it at info at radioparallax.com. It appears we're going to have to go to moveon.org ourselves and obtain a copy of that uh, video. Perhaps we'll have a showing that we will uh, organize. So stay tuned for that. Here's an item we are just happy to report on for you. Apparently, an advisory panel of the Food and Drug Administration voted overwhelmingly Tuesday to recommend that an emergency contraceptive drug, the so-called morning-after pill, be sold over-the-counter. This is scandalously overdue in this country. We've talked about this in this program before with, uh, with several people from, from uh, Planned Parenthood. Amy Kubich came on the show, talked about contraception. We talked to Ann Dilzer, and we have also talked to Vicki and Bill Wilson about issues of contraception uh, and abortion. Abortion is something we would like to see ended in this country. It's not a good method of birth control, uh, although I do hope that it remains, uh, of course, safe and legal in the meantime. But this is one way to prevent a need for an abortion. The morning-after pill has now been proven to be quite safe, and uh, it should be available in pharmacies across this country over-the-counter. We'll be following that story. Campaign 2004 is heating up. The California primary is just a few months away, and joining us now is one of the Democratic contenders, Connecticut Senator Joseph Lieberman. Yes, yeah, good to be here, Doug. Well, we're, 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 sir, we're glad to have you on Radio Parallax. Senator, it appears that the Howard Dean campaign appears to be taking off. Dean now is... Poppycock! Uh, I, I don't buy into that whole media, everyone's like trying to get on the bandwagon with Dean. I have a bandwagon too, Doug. It's not quite as large, but it is a bandwagon, and there are people joining. I, I have some endorsements. Uh, who have you got, Senator, that's on, on joining your bandwagon? Well, I, I've got a lot of people, Doug. Okay. Um, Chomping t- at the bit to get on the Lieberman bandwagon. Um, I've got, um, well, have you heard of that comic Pat Cooper? He was a, uh, I believe he was a Catskills comic, appeared on Ed Sullivan. He's endorsed me 100%, Pat Cooper. Some of your younger listeners may not remember Pat Cooper. We have Mike Connors. You may remember him. He was TV's Mannix. We have yeah. Mike Connors in our he, He's joined your bandwagon. Yes, he's jumped on board because he sees the train is leaving the station. And All right, have any of the Kennedys joined your campaign, Senator? Yes, indeed, they have. I do have a major Kennedy who has backed my campaign, Doug. Oh, really? Yes, George Kennedy. You, do you remember George? He was in, I believe, several of the Irwin Allen big-budget movies in the 70s. The airport, I believe. Yeah, I remember from the, the Bilko show. George Kennedy is 
endorsing the Lieberman bandwagon. We have a lot of big-name actors and, and even politicians who have endorsed my campaign. Oh. The juggernaut, which is going all the way to the nomination in Boston, Doug. Which politicians have, have come on I'm board? I'm not at liberty to say yet. We are firming that up, still getting all of the details and stuff worked out. But uh, I will be announcing that shortly. I'll let you know, and your listeners know, as soon as we can. Senator, is it a is it a uh, a setback for your campaign that uh, Al Gore, your former running mate in two thousand, has now endorsed Senator uh, Governor Dean? No, no, it is not a setback. Emphatically, no. Uh, I'm not, I don't feel bad at all, Doug. In fact, this has actually energized my campaign. I am a new Lieberman. I am hot. I am raring to go. You know, Doug, Al had to do what he had to do, and I have no hard feelings at all. I have no negative feelings towards Al just because he basically left me hanging but but i mean that's neither here nor there that's that's water under the bridge and dean has al and i've got lots of endorsements i don't have to worry about al gore i'm my own man doug well senator uh, howard dean of course being the vermont senator and you being the uh, excuse me the, the vermont former vermont governor and you being the senator from connecticut new hampshire is always the important first primary and you guys are both local well, first boys well let me say what's more important a senator a nationally known senator who was almost vice president or some little guy from a little state. I mean, come on, which is more important? I ask you. I, I, I guess a senator is sort of higher up in the hierarchy. I mean, it's like, you know, a queen is more valuable than a rook. Well, a senator from Connecticut is simply more valuable than a governor from Vermont. Everyone knows that. Well, Senator, will this translate into electoral victory for you in New Hampshire? Are you, are you predicting that? I am going on record right now predicting that I will most probably be among the top three winners in New Hampshire. Yes, I can emphatically predict that. All right. Well, Senator, when uh, as the California primary draws near, we hope you'll come back on the show and talk to us again. Well, I certainly will. Thank you, Senator Joseph Lieberman. Let's do a little bit of science on today's program. And joining us today will be a special assistant, uh, Ted Dunning, from This Week in Science, one of our fellow public affairs hosts. Ted, are you there? Yes, thanks for having me on. Hey, uh, well, we've had, we've had uh, Kirsten on already, so it's your turn. Well, I shall endeavor to do my best. Well, I know that one of your favorite subjects are, uh, are planets, extrasolar planets, and planets out there in the great, uh, in the great void. Uh, did you follow the story about Vega, the solar system that, uh, I guess, well, do we, first of all, is it a star system or a solar system if the planets are around another star? Well, this is a, a long-standing semantic argument that I, I try not to put too much stock in because it can be humorous, but it's ultimately diversionary uh, because, of course, we're the only solar system that we knew of until about 10 years ago. Right. And now we're finding planets that orbit other stars. So it's really whatever you want to call it, star system, solar system. I interchange them without apologizing. Well, what are they in the, what are they in the old Star Trek days? I know you're quite the aficionado. Did they, uh, what did they call it back then? I believe they did the same thing. They said star. Yeah. All right. Well, anyway, a few years back, someone figured out that, uh, that around the planet Vega, which is easily visible tonight, if it's a clear night, people can go out and look to the west, and probably the brightest thing up there will be the blue, uh, the bluish-white colored Vega, 25 light years away. Yep. And uh, they discovered, I guess, Carl Sagan in 1985 when he wrote Contact. 
he uh, made that the basis for where there would be uh, radio transmissions extraterrestrially. Yeah, he had like an alien relay device circling Vega, and this was, of course, before um, any planets were discovered there. But it was a good guess on Sagan's part, because they'd found this disk of dusk, and he thought that might imply a planet. Yeah, it was um, back at the time. It's it's hard to remember that it really wasn't until it was October of '95 when the first of any extrasolar planet was uh, announced. Up until then, it was just uh, completely conjecture. It wasn't taken for granted by anyone that it would be common to find planets orbiting stars because we had nothing to base it against. Yeah, and then just um, pretty much at the rate of about ten new solar systems per year since 95 have been being announced as as being found somewhere yeah. and usually quite close by. I guess we're over 100 now. Yeah, we're up around 120 now. And and and, and now it apparently turns out my understanding is that they they believe there's a Neptune-sized planet orbiting Vega at about twice the distance that Neptune is from our sun. Yeah, and what's what's really neat about this is that it's one of the more normal extrasolar systems yeah. that we found. Usually it's these incredibly big planets orbiting very, very close, which is, is nothing really like our own solar system. Yeah, red-hot Jupiters. Yeah, exactly. Jupiters that are three times closer to their sun than Mercury is, which is just incredibly close. <laughs> yeah. So, of course, the idea is that you need large planets, but at a certain distance from the star, and these kind of act as a big room to sweep up asteroids and comets that can threaten smaller planets that might develop life closer to the star. So it's, it's a really exciting time for this kind of stuff, and really in the next 10, 15 years is when it'll get neat, because right now we can only detect these large planets. That's why every discovery you hear of is these incredibly big planets, because yeah. that's all we can find with the current equipment. If all goes well, in nine years, they're going to launch the Terrestrial Planet Finder, which is a system of space-based telescopes that will be able to actually show us um, Earth-sized planets around stars within 50 light years, and there's quite a few stars within 50 light years. That's going to use interferometry, is it? It's going to use interferometry, which is a really neat way of using just a few data gathering points spaced widely apart and to interfere to tease the data out and thereby you create just a much larger telescope. So you're basically like seeing how the different light waves are coming in and you're able to use that data, you're really taking it a whole whole exponential leap further. Yeah, and we'll be able to see what atmospheres are made of and temperatures and predominant elements. It'll be great. We, uh, we need to talk more about that in the future in future uh, shows and so I hope you'll come on and do some of that with us. Yeah, I'd be glad to. And, uh, and you are an aviator also, we should mention. We're going to be talking more aviation. Uh, yesterday marked the 100th anniversary of the Wright Brothers flight, and uh, we're, we're hoping to, to talk to some uh, prominent aviators in the future, and you should come on and talk about, because uh, you're, you're a helicopter guy. That's uh, true. I uh, fly the helicopters. We'll, we'll give you the Igor Sikorsky uh, aspect of, of, of aviation pioneers. Okay, I'll see if I can explain how a helicopter flies in a minute or less. That's a good challenge. Well, Ted Dunning, I keep up the good work over on This Week in Science, which can be heard you should plug every Tuesday morning. That's correct, sir. 8.30. Well, thanks for having me on. All right, Ted. Take care. Okay.
I think we are just about out of time for this segment. So let's take a short break and return to talk about aviation. Also in our third segment today, we'll be talking about the very interesting large donation made by philanthropist Joan Kroc to National Public Radio. You're listening to Radio Parallax. This is KDVS 90.3 FM, Davis, Sacramento. Oh, and I'm your host, Douglas Everett. <laughs> 